Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Thursday. Don't ask me why. I just do. Uh, good morning to you. Welcome to All Marine Radio here on a Wednesday. I got to think about it. Um, Chris Woodbridge going to join us here for a few minutes and talk about the Marine Corps Gazette. And uh, Woody had a pretty interesting experience recently going up and presenting a Purple Heart to one of his Marines um, that he served with uh, when he was uh, he was a commanding officer of 1-7 and uh, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines. So uh, so we'll ask him about that. And because there's lessons in there, if you're if you know somebody who has a TBI and, and would never received a Purple Heart, um, it's not easy to do low all these years later, but uh, it's not impossible to do either. So if you haven't done the due dil- diligence, uh, Woody will kind of talk to you about how you get that ball rolling. So good morning to you. Welcome to uh, to this Wednesday morning. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to go talk to the Marine Corps League here in uh, here in uh, August and in Springfield, Illinois, the home of. I don't know, where Abraham Lincoln practiced law, I think, where he first rose to national prominence as a congressman, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
Is that true, or is that just me? <laughs> is that just me talking, talking trash? Well, there's only one way to find out, right? Um, so let's find out. Abraham Lincoln. We go to the Wikipedia page. Born in poverty in a log cabin and raised on the frontier primarily in Indiana. He was self-educated and became a lawyer. Member of the Whig Party, Illinois State Legislature, legislator, then a U.S. congressman from Illinois. In 1849, he returned to his law practice but became vexed by the opening of additional lands to slavery as a result of the Nebraska-Kansas Act, he re-entered politics in 1854, becoming a leader in the new Republican Party, and he reached a national audience in the 1858 debates against Stephen Douglas. He ran for president in 1860, sweeping the North in victory. Um, let's see. Early life. He was born in Kentucky. How does he get to Springfield, Illinois? Hold on, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. In late 1836, Lincoln agreed to a match with Owens if she returned to New Salem, Illinois. Owens arrived that November. That This is his wife who becomes Mary Todd Lincoln, right? And he courted her for a time. However, they both had second thoughts. On August 16, 1837, he wrote Owens a letter saying that he would not blame her if she ended the relationship and she never replied. Oh, this is uh, his first um, his first love. His second love, in 1839, Lincoln met Mary Todd in Springfield, Illinois. And the following year, they became engaged. She was the daughter of Robert, Todd Smith, Robert Smith Todd, a wealthy lawyer and businessman from Lexington, Kentucky. Wedding set for January 1 was canceled at Lincoln's request, but they reconciled and married on November 4th of 1842 in the Springfield mansion of Mary's sister. While anxiously preparing for the nuptials, he was asked where he was going, and he replied, to hell, I suppose. In 1844, the couple bought a house in Springfield near his law office. Mary kept house with the help of a hired servant and a relative. Let's see. How does he get to Springfield? Lincoln's largely self-educated. As a teen, Lincoln took responsibility for chores and custom that 
were customarily given to a man of the house. Gave his father all of his earnings from work outside the home until he was 21. He was an active wrestler during his youth and trained in the rough catch-as-catch-can style. For those of you that are familiar with that kind of wrestling. He became the county wrestling champion at the age of 21. He gained a reputation for strength and audacity after winning a wrestling match with the renowned leader of ruffians known as the Clary Grove Boys. In March of 1830, fearing another milk sickness outbreak, several members of the extended Lincoln family, including Abraham, moved west to Illinois, a free state, and settled in Macon County. Macon County is located in Illinois. The county seat is Decatur. In 1831, Thomas and other family members prepared to move to a new homestead in Coles County. Abraham struck out on his own. He made his new home in New Salem, Illinois, for six years. Lincoln and some friends took goods by flatboat to New Orleans, Louisiana, where he was first exposed to slavery. So it sounds like he's living in New Salem when he meets Mary Todd and then he moves to Springfield. So I don't know how I went on that rabbit hole, but I, I hope I hope you find some enlightenment out of all of that. Um, yeah, Abraham Lincoln, how he gets to Springfield, Illinois. So anyway, I'm 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 going there to speak to the Marine Corps League, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that. I think there's a role that the Marine Corps League can play in spreading the gospel of post-traumatic winning. And uh, I think it, it could uh, give them another mission. Uh, so it'll be interesting. Um, I'm excited about it. I'm excited to audition this in front of them. And, uh, you know, imagine if uh, we had, Mar- you know, Marine League, Marine Corps League chapters that in addition to all the other good things they do that, you know, had a speaking program that could talk about, you know, um, mental health, that there is nothing wrong with you and uh, and all of that, that this is normal. Uh, we as a service have done it for a lot of years, and there is a path through it. And if you're struggling, there's you're normal like the rest of us. Imagine if you, know, you could take that message out into a community. Yeah, so I think that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty cool. So um, let's see what's going on. Uh, the Mensa Brothers will join me tomorrow. That's going on. Um, 4th of July weekend. I know that because my dogs are not really happy right now. Um, every night we shut the windows early and, uh, turn the music on, but I think I'm going to have to go buy some Benadryl and, uh, because Jack just loses his mind and, and, and for whatever reason, you know, when we first got our other dog, Joe, uh, he didn't seem to be bothered by fireworks. And I don't know if it's watching Jack and he sees Jack get terrified. And so he thinks that, you know, there must be something wrong if his older brother's getting terrified. Joe's as bad or worse. 
than Jack is now. So anyway, and Benadryl was the only thing that seemed to help. And it makes Jack kind of curl up and go to sleep. And he's all, then he's all right. So, um, yeah, I'll have to go invest in some of that today. Um, yeah, 4th of July weekend, most people get out of town and, and, uh, and do something. And uh, pretty hot in the northern part of the, the United States. Canada setting world records for temperatures. Yeah. So that going on. And uh, we continue to get, try to get out of Afghanistan. That's what we're going to talk about uh, tomorrow with the Mensas. There's a lot of things being written about uh, about that. Uh, one is the pace of the Afghan advance has accelerated. And uh, so we'll get their, we'll get their opinions. And I'm curious to hear what uh, Tim and Jeff have to say, guys who spent so much time there. Um, cause I don't think it's going to take a lot of months before something happens. I think the writing is on the wall. I think the Afghan people know it. That's why you see the speed of the advance. And, uh, I think what you're going to find is a lot of Afghan soldiers are not going to be willing to die for it. And that will hasten the demise. So ultimately what will happen? Ultimately what will happen? Well, we shall see. We shall see. And what happens to all the Western-type advances that the Afghan culture has made in, in media, in cell phones, in women, in education, in women working in the community, work, working in industry, working in all facets of, of uh, life. So anyhow, uh, we'll see what happens. It's not, and again, um, uh, it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. Um, so what we'll do is uh, we'll check the news uh, here. There's a bunch of it. There's some interesting stuff coming out of, uh, of uh, this interesting article in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and I think another one in Reuters. And I'll find it. And it has to do with, uh, both have to do with, with China and uh, Chinese people. talking about China. One is a paper coming out of the Stanford Institute, the Hoover Institute at Stanford. So, um, yeah, about how fragile the Chinese Communist Party leadership is and how there is a coming demographic change in China. And that that general that generational change is China does not have the young people of China do not have the appetite for this confrontational um, this confrontational communist approach to the world. They desperately want to see the world. They want access to the world. Um. And they don't have the appetite for this communist thing. So it's very interesting. Very interesting stories. And so um, so I'll find that one in the Wall Street Journal. And I'll find the Reuters one as well. And uh, so, yeah, interesting stuff. Stuff that you don't see. People, um, one of them is a former Chinese party. 
the woman who writes the one in uh in the Wall Street Journal um she is like one of the instructors at the Chinese party in a school of thought, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of interesting. She gets stuck outside the country during COVID. And now she's writing about China. And she's the one that alleges that you know that the the leader the chi- Chinese leadership is much more frail than the West um, understands, and it's either in that article or in a subsequent article that they say she says I think it might be somebody else, but I thought it was her that says. She says, the West is just naive. China has been at war with the West forever. And the West just continues to to, to look through China with its rose-colored glasses, believing all this nonsense as China gobbles things up. So, very, very interesting stuff. So, good morning. Uh, we'll look at the news. We'll talk about that stuff. Chris Woodbridge going to join us. We'll talk about um, in the Gazette. In June, July, which is what we're talking about, uh, Dale Alford's got an article that if you haven't seen it, you should. He was on here talking about it. Um, I should, uh, I should get a, a copy of it, and I should put it on my website and then link it to the uh, the Gazette website. But it's a great article. It's called the Floor, Four Block Littoral War. It's the best, most concise thing I've seen written about this vision of what the future Marine Corps is. Yeah, General Alfred, a great guy. And so he's written a piece in the Marine Corps. So Woody talks about that. Woody also talks about um, he also talks about recruiting and how uh, recruiting is going to change. But anyway, that there's a, a an article written in the Jul- J- July Gazette by the chief of staff of the um, of the recruiting command, and he said, "You need to read that. It's really good." So, um, welcome to All Marine Radio on a Wednesday. The United States Marine Corps Band makes it official. Good morning to you. <laughs>
This is dedicated to nobody today. This is dedicated to all you people that listen to this on a regular basis. So uh, thanks for listening. Um, it's hard to believe this is the sixth year of Balmerine Radio, but it is. Do the math. So, um, yeah, it's dedicated to you people who listen all the time. I, I truly appreciate it. I hope you get something out of it. Um, all, all Marine Radio is kind of a unique place, and I, I, I love doing it. Hopefully I continue continue to do it for a long time. Uh, sometimes because of the demands of post-traumatic winning, I'm not so sure. But uh, we shall see. We shall see. But uh, it's dedicated to everybody who listens on a regular basis. Thank you. betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Alright, time to check the weather in Marine Land. Uh, ahead of the news and then Chris Woodbridge. Uh, currently it is sunny in 88 in Quantico. Yeah, gonna be hot. Uh, partly sunny in 85. Camp Lejeune. Marine Corps Base 29 Palms. It is sunny in 89. Camp Pendleton, partly sunny 65. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy 72. Okinawa, down to two weather alerts. Dark cloudy in 77. In Manila, further to the south. Right? 
It is dark, cloudy, and 84. And in Darwin, you know, hold on. I Now I have to look at this. Because normally I like to do cities, right, in geographical order as we moved east to west. That's how I like to do it. Okay? So... Let me get my map of the world up. Google Earth. I love Google Earth, by the way. Not a big fan of Google, but Google Earth, I love. Okay, so, let's see. How do I do this? So if you put the Earth. Okay, that's how I normally see it. What's further west? Darwin or Manila? Yeah. Answer? Come on, man. Manila, of course. I got to I got so I got to change the order of these cities. Yeah, doesn't make me happy. But I've got to do it. So or I could just say them in reverse order. Darwin is dark clear and 73 right now. As the temperature's cool in Darwin. Mike Marletto gave me an education one day about Australian weather, but I've forgotten it all. <laughs> uh, it's cloudy in 66 at the home of Almering Radio in the Southern California area. Looking for a high. The weather here has been gorgeous. Looking for a high of 74. On Thursday, it'll be 75. On Friday, 76. On Saturday, 75. On Sunday, 74. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, the weather only a factor in terms of making your life better. Not a factor in uh, in making your life worse. All right, top stories today. Um, headline, Stars and Stripes. German and Italian troops fully withdraw from Afghanistan as U.S. forces continue to leave. Yeah, we always make sure everybody else out before us. So that is in the news today. The um, that in the news, the other story in the news, it's a Marine story. Marines no longer have to send 360-degree tattoo photos to the Marine Corps. story by Chad Garland. The Marine Corps has done away with a tattoo policy rule requiring its members to submit 360-degree photos of themselves when seeking enlisted retention or special assignment like embassy guard or drill instructor. In an admin memo last week, the service ended the nearly seven-year-old requirement for the photos, which were used to validate compliance with the service's tattoo regulations, the strictest of the Defense Department's. Marines have complained for years that the tattoo policy hurts careers and retention and may prevent otherwise qualified recruits from joining the service. Other Marines have lamented 
all the body art they won't get, such as sleeves, so long as the rule remains intact. So, yeah, Marine Corps tattoo policy. A little bit tight. The kids don't like it. Got to be able to do with your canvas what you want, right? Of course. I mean, come on. Um, Let's see. There's some interesting stories in the news this morning. Uh, In the Wall Street Journal, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation pledges $2.1 billion for gender equity. Melinda French Gates has made women's empowerment a priority for the foundation and for her company. That $2.1 billion on gender equity work is going to be spread over five years, deepening a commitment to programs long championed by Melinda French Gates. And this announcement just a few weeks after they announced their divorce. The amount is among the largest single commitments the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has made in its more than two decades of work cementing the advancement of gender equity as a priority alongside polio eradication and the development of vaccines. Amounting to the equivalent of $420 million a year, the funding is intended to help women obtain training and financial services to increase access to contraceptives and to help elevate women into leadership roles in health, law, and economics. So, yeah, how about that? That's that's not a small thing. Now, there's another article that I want to... that's in the Wall Street Journal today. Um, Hold on. Here's the article. It appeared yesterday. All right, so here's here's an interesting little story I saw. China falls behind the U.S. in global image, survey data shows. Despite a positive appraisal of Beijing's handling of the pandemic, people in most advanced economies hold overall negative views of China. What that? Interesting. China is falling behind the U.S. in global esteem, continuing to hover near all-time lows despite improved marks for its handling of the pandemic. you got to be kidding me. A new poll in 17 advanced economies found. Asked which country they would prefer to closer economic ties with a growing majority of respondents across the population named the U.S. over China, the survey done by the Pew Research Center, who does incredible stuff. That reflects a rebound in America's global image since the Trump administration gave way to the Biden administration. Pew found in another poll published in early June. Yeah, Donald Trump, pretty rough on the image. Not going to lie to you. Um, Yeah, bedside manner, not so good. But this is the article I was talking about relative to China. China. Former Chinese Party insider calls U.S. hopes of engagement naive. 
on the eve of the Communist Party, this is subheadline, on the eve of the Communist Party's anniversary, regime critic Kai C A I Kai Ji Jai G X I A X I is G, so this is X I A Jia urges Washington to take hard-headed defensive measures. Interesting. A former Chinese Communist Party academic, now a critic of the regime, is urging the U.S. to abandon naive hopes to engage with Beijing, while warning that the country's leadership is far more fragile than it appears. Yeah, I mean, we don't get really a glimpse like this. I mean, you don't see it that often. In a forthcoming paper, time to be released during the party's centennial tomorrow, Kai Jia, a former professor at Beijing's Central Party School, says the four decades of U.S. bridge building has merely entrenched a Chinese leadership inherently hostile to the U.S. And under President Xi Jinping, China no longer finds engagement useful, Mrs. Kai wrote. Quote, wishful thinking about, quote, engagement, unquote, must be replaced by hard-headed defensive measures to protect the United States from the CCP's aggression while bringing offensive measures to bear on it as the Chinese Communist Party is much more fragile than Americans assume, Ms. Kai wrote. Her 28-page paper is slated for publication this week by the Hoover Institution, a conservative-leaning think tank at Stanford University. A growing roster of Western politicians and analysts has concluded that U.S. diplomacy with China has not paid dividends. Like, you can file that under a firm grasp of the obvious. Those men says. But such views are rarely expressed publicly by sources as highly placed as Ms. Kai was just a short time ago. The paper called An Insider's Perspective comes as the party under... Mr. Xi rides the wave of approval at home for crushing dissent in Hong Kong and containing the domestic spread of COVID-19. The anniversary event is of momentous importance for the personal credibility of the 68-year-old Mr. Xi, who appears unassailable at the party core and has been to retain power indefinitely. Ms. Kai, also 68, has lectured Chinese policymakers on ideology for 15 years at the party's top training institution until she retired in 2012, the same year Mr. Xi took the party helm. By happenstance, she was in the United States as a tourist when the outbreak of COVID-19 frustrated her plans upon to return. After comments critical of Mr. Xi and attributed to her circulated online last year, the party expelled Ms. Kai, limiting the likelihood she could return safely to China. Interesting. In the subsequent months, she has become publicly critical of the regime that in the past relied on her to promote it in rosy commentaries published by China's government-run media. She resolved to make a complete break with the party, Ms. Kai wrote in a lengthy foreign affairs article in January. After 20 years of hesitation, confusion, and misery, she singled out what she called President Xi's Great Leap Backwards. Her years spent developing party ideology 
make Ms. Kai more credible than any other critic of the party outside of China, says Chen Yonglin, a former Chinese diplomat in Australia who defected to the nation, Australia, in 2005. Quote, her attacks on the CPC will damage CPC doctrine, the system, because she's from the inside, Mr. Chen said. After all, he said, the party school is the brains of the CPC. So uh, the article goes on. Um, pretty interesting stuff in the Wall Street Journal. It's entitled "A Former Chinese Communist." It's entitled "Former Chinese Party Insider Calls U.S. Hopes of Engagement Naive." That's the best part of the, the article where she bags on the United States. Um, here's the things I thought were really uh, interesting. In a weekend essay for the Wall Street Journal, Andrew Nathan, a political science professor at Columbia University, wrote, quote, A generational shift is underway in China with traditional values giving way to more liberal attitudes and it does not favor the long-term prospects of the Chinese Communist Party. How about that? In a statement accompanying Ms. Kai's paper, Hoover Senior Fellow Larry Diamond said, quote, For the first time, we have an important figure from within the Chinese Communist Party system courageously confirming what many U.S. scholars of China have recently been arguing. So again, interesting, interesting stuff. She talks about the weakness of the Chinese Communist Party. According to Ms. Kai, China is powerful in appearance, but riven, R-I-V-E-N, with contradictions and self-doubt that have become more pronounced under Mr. Xi. Quote, the CCP has the ambition of a hungry dragon but inside it is a paper tiger, she writes. She wrote that Washington should be prepared for the possible sudden disintegration of the party. While she alleged deep divisions among its 92 million members, she didn't offer recent evidence of a split with Mr. Xi, aside from writing, that many party members and elites in society, quote, accept and approve of the American democratic system and freedom as universal values. <laughs> How about that? How about that? Um, and But this is the thing that, that I find, again, again, a firm grasp of the obvious. By, Mrs., by Ms. Kai's reckoning, U.S. policymakers have miscalculated at every turn from restoring relations with Beijing after Beijing's 1989 crackdown in Tiananmen Square to backing China's entry into the World Trade Organization. Naive that has emboldened the regime. While U.S. administrations have described China as a competitor, the Communist Party has always viewed the U.S. as a hostile adversary, she argued. Anyway, yeah, really interesting stuff in the Wall Street Journal today. 
And there's there's one other article that I, I can't find that I won't waste your time with, but um I'm very interesting stuff. Uh, USNI News um, from a panel. Budget priorities prompted the Navy to cut forces to prevent having a hollow fleet. So this is more commentary on the whole Navy divest to invest and really the problems the Navy is having with shipbuilding, with their budget, and this transformation they're trying to execute in stride. Right. So if you did not listen to... Th- the hearing segments last week, I would tell you to do so. I kind of cut them up and edited them so that you'd only hear stuff that I would think you'd find interesting. So, um, yeah, about the Navy and the Marine Corps. Um, There's kind of an interesting diagram about Valiant Shield 2020, article written by Sam Legrome, but talk about Indo-PACOM. Indo-PACOM used ground-based AG's combat system prototype to target missile threats and surface targets. And they have this very complex diagram. They have what looks like a carrier battle group in some, you know, off the coast of somebody with islands. You have, you know, precision fires being executed from HIMARS uh, platforms, I assume, that were put there by Marines on these little atolls. Pretty interesting. Um, pretty interesting little diagram. Kind of gives you a future look of life. Let's see some other news from yesterday. House bill proposed cuts money for Navy nuclear cruise missiles but saves three littoral combat ships from decommissioning. So that'll be interesting to see subsequent hearings, what the Navy says about that. Another headline, this one by Gidget Fuentes. We like Gidget. Um, Cybercom, Navy-Marine integration must extend across the cyber realm to protect weapons, systems, and data. I don't, um, like... I don't know, like, how how do we do cyber if we're not all on the same sheet of music? Does that make sense to anybody? Oh, yeah, the Marines are over there, the Navy's over there. I, I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. Call me stupid. Uh, some stories out of uh, Marine Corps Times. Uh, one is horrible from the Associated Press. Midship, midshipman's mom fatally shot outside Annapolis Hotel. She's sitting on a patio. In Annapolis, the Capital Gazette reports that police said shots were likely fired on a nearby street and the woman outside the Graduate Hotel was not the intended target. I mean, what the hell? I mean, you're sitting there having breakfast, you get shot and killed. Another interesting story, another Associated Press story. Um, Headline, top U.S. general says security in Afghanistan is deteriorating. Yeah, how about that? General Austin S. Miller, U.S. top general in Afghanistan. Quote, what I don't want to do is speculate 
what that support looks like in the future that we will bring here in Afghanistan. But it ain't going well. The Taliban evidently have told commanders to slow down. Yeah. Miller says this. He evidently sat down with reporters yesterday. It is a political settlement that brings peace to Afghanistan. And it's not just the last 20 years. It's really the last 42 years. Right? So the Russians before the Americans. Meanwhile, Taliban fighters have been overrunning districts in rapid succession, many of them in the northern part of the country, which is dominated by Afghanistan's minorities. The north is also the traditional stronghold of many former Mujahideen leaders who have been a dominant force in Afghanistan since driving the Taliban from power in 2001 together with the U.S. coalition. Miller said there were multiple reasons for the collapse of these districts, including troop fatigue and surrender, psychological defeat, and military defeat. But he said the escalating violence puts the country at risk of falling into a deadly civil war. You know, I mean, when you're watching that young Afghan army, are they going to die for their country? Are they going to fight for their country? We shall see. Next headline from Marine Corps Times. As Pentagon weighs sending troops back to Somalia, AFRICOM chief makes his case. Six months after former President Donald Trump abruptly pulled troops out of Somalia, the new administration is discussing whether to send them back in. Army General Stephen Townsend said this. I think we'll keep those options right where they should be in private communications with the Secretary of Defense so our civilian leaders have the opportunity to make their decisions. But he added, it's a lot hard, I don't know, it's a lot hard to train, advise, and assist Somali forces from afar. Quote, I would say that there's really no denying our repositioning. Fairly sudden repositioning out of Somalia earlier this year has introduced new layers of risk and complexity into the mission there. About 700 troops had been deployed to Somalia. President Trump pulled them out. Right now, they're commuting back and forth to work. This is uh, the senior enlisted leader in an interview with Military Times in April. So I mean, it's this is Sergeant Major Richard Thresher. All right. He's a Marine. So I mean, it's obvious. You can figure out that it does reduce a little bit of your nimbleness. So you better rely on indications and warnings and use those type of things to best plan for what types of patrols or whatever you're going to do. You've got to plan better and earlier and often more often. And a lot of that's dependent upon intelligence because you're just not there. So, uh, yeah, Somalia back on the radar. 
I thought we were unassing that part of the world. All right. Uh, top five stories in early bird, and then Chris Woodbridge going to join us. Uh, number one, it's imminent. After 20 years, U.S. will leave Bagram Airfield. Yeah, a name that you've heard in the news for a long time. Number two, Navy won't investigate Eddie Gallagher's podcast comments about the Islamic State's detainee's death. When will he just go away? Okay, look, dude, you won. You got off. The whole scam. Go the fuck away. Number three, House Democrats want to spend more on weapons procurement than the president does. Tweaking Joe Biden's Pentagon spending request for the next year, House appropriators have proposed $1.7 billion for more weapons procurement and $1.6 billion less for development and testing of cutting-edge technologies meant to deter China. Yeah, I don't know how you do pure warfare and cut the defense budget. Um, number four, although throwing money at it is not. I mean, you gotta you got to buy the right things. you got to be harder on it. And let me tell you, the Navy... Shipbuilding, that's big money, and we seem to be screwing it up all the time. Number four, GOP donor to fund the cost of sending South Dakota National Guard troops to Texas. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem said Tuesday she will use a donation from a Republican donor to fund the deployment of up to 50 South Dakota National Guard troops to the U.S. border with Mexico. Uh, I don't like that. Yeah. I don't think private people should be funding military movements. Call me crazy. I don't care if you have a donor or what. That's not a private little militia that you're fucking with. I'm not. I like Christy Nome. I don't like this. Number five is the Pentagon ways sending troops back to Somalia, AFRICOM, Chief Mexico. case. Uh, top stories overseas. Uh, the lead story of that section is. Top U.S. general says security in Afghanistan is deteriorating. We talked about that. Uh, we talked about the story about the U.S. Navy in the Black Sea with other allies. And uh, that's a look at the news. Chris Woodbridge going to join us right now. And we recorded this a little bit earlier today. So... Um, this is Chris Woodbridge which, with a pretty quick rundown of what's in this year, this uh, the June and July edition of uh, of the Marine Corps Gazette. And also, I mean, Woody tells a story about uh, being able to present one of his Marines a Purple Heart that was earned in 2005. And so uh, there's also instructions if uh, he'll talk about how that happened and if you're in a similar circumstance, how you can go ahead and try to, um, you know, go down and do your due diligence to see if you can rectify a situation where somebody was not awarded an award they're entitled to. So without further ado, uh, the one and only Chris Woodbridge. Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only all Warrior Radio Network. Okay, this is take two because I forgot to start the recorder. Um, I'll say that so Woody doesn't. Uh, Chris Woodbridge joins me. Um, Woody, first of all, how you been? What's going on? I'm doing doing very well, Mac. Uh, can't complain. All right. Um, we're rushed for time because Woody and I were 
running our mouths off uh, before we started the recorder for a while. And uh, it, it's exciting stuff, though, and hopefully down the road you'll hear something about it. But um, um, I want to, uh, real quick, you uh, you had an experience. You awarded a Purple Heart uh, to one of your Marines here recently. And I want you to kind of, uh, can you outline uh, what happened and if somebody else um, is uh, is in a similar situation, what they can do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very, uh, very uh, rewarding and, and kind of emotional weekend uh, for me and some uh, some other veterans of uh, uh, Charlie Company One Seven. That's the uh, that's the historic Suicide Charlie One uh, Seven, the only company in the Marine Corps authorized to carry two guidons. Uh, the second one uh, uh, had its origin back on Guadalcanal on Bloody Ridge, uh, but. Um, the incident here, the uh, the action took place in January of 2005, uh, an IED uh, strike on, uh, on one of my vehicles. And uh, uh, the driver of that vehicle at the time, Lance Corporal uh, Dave Wickham, uh, suffered what at the time we really just called a concussion or a, a closed head trauma. And uh, he was treated and returned to duty and was never, uh, never awarded uh, the Purple Heart for combat wounds. Uh, because at that time, uh, what we now know as traumatic brain injury was not considered a, uh, a combat wound. And so uh, the other occupant of that vehicle was uh, uh, later medically retired Staff Sergeant John Jones, uh, who was actually featured in a, an HBO special called The Live Day. He, uh, he took the brunt of the uh, triple stacked landmine IED blast and, uh, and would eventually uh, 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 have both legs amputated, um, and has gone on to do some, uh, some amazing, amazing work, advocacy, uh, uh, private business work and, uh, and, and, and done other things to support veterans. But when he found out that his driver had not, uh, received a purple heart, um, even after the policy changed and the policy was studied in 2008 and, and changed in, uh, in 2011, um, he started a, uh, a contact uh, campaign to get witness statements and uh, statements from the chain of command at that time from uh, platoon uh, all the way up to me. I was, I was the battalion commander at that time and, uh, and also reached out to the uh, wounded warrior regiment at Quantico to uh, uh, get some assistance there. And uh, over the course of about a year, put together that package. And then uh, uh, we went to uh, the awards branch at uh, manpower uh, at, uh, again on, on Quantico and, uh, got that, got that package approved, uh, and then, uh, flew up to, uh, East Greenbush, New York, just outside Albany to, uh, uh, present that, uh, that long overdue, uh, award to, uh, uh, to Sergeant Wickham. He, uh, he got out of the Marine Corps as a Sergeant, settled up, uh, back in upstate New York and several other, uh, combat wounded veterans from, uh, from Suicide Charlie 17 uh, attended uh, that ceremony. Uh, guys hadn't really seen each other in about 16 years and uh, a very, very uh, rewarding experience to, uh, uh, to put things right uh, and, and to, uh, to live up to our motto, which is always faithful. So, uh, so a great, great experience there. The, um, so if somebody, uh, how do you get the ball rolling if you know somebody that's in, in in the same situation? What are the key? Who are the key resources? Where do you go? 
So, I mean, ultimately, it's a uh, it's a challenge, and the longer the longer it has been, obviously, the more difficult it is, because uh, there's there's really sort of three uh, 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 three key elements that that have to you know demonstrate the facts of what happened. You need you need witness statements, uh, you need statements from uh, the chain of command. Uh, uh, and the higher in the chain of command you can get those statements, the better. Um, and then you also need statements from uh, medical officer or medical personnel. And uh, and one of the challenges that we faced here was uh, uh, then Lance Corporal Wickham was uh, was never treated by a medical officer. He was treated by an independent duty corpsman, uh, which was all we had available uh, because of the way the battalion was dispersed through uh, through Western Anbar Province at that time. Um, and so uh, uh, the the record was there, uh, the treatment record was there, the uh, personal casualty report was there, the PCR, um, but it had to be uh, it had to be found, had to be uh, uh, reviewed by a board at Manpower, and they they do due diligence on this. They are the they are really the keepers of the standard for the Marine Corps, uh, and uh, and and they will ensure that that Marines get what they rate. Uh, and that those who uh, might not uh, meet that standard uh, don't don't just uh, uh, get authorized to uh, to wear to wear any award without uh, without justification. So um, if uh, if if there's a place to start, uh, you know, the place is uh, is starting with uh, the uh, uh, the veterans who who were there. Uh, getting those statements, trying to you know, build that network back up and get in touch with the chain of command. Um, the uh, the Wounded Warrior Regiment at Quantico, uh, again, can help with that uh, and also help with the, uh, the the paperwork side of accessing those uh, those military records to find the uh, uh, the original data, uh, medical treatment and uh, uh, the uh, the personal casualty report. Uh, so so those are those are good places to start. And, uh, you know, you, there's uh, easy, easy access to find uh, out there online. Got it. All right. Uh, well, first of all, congratulations on getting that done. Anytime you see that, it always uh, it always makes uh, it always makes everybody's heart warm. And, and I know for you, I mean, nothing like being in the company of, of, of those who you served with and especially served with in, in, in some kind of forward capacity. And uh, there's a special bond in, in those organizations, and it's uh, it's uh, I think I, I see it all the time. Very healing, and very important to see each other, especially so you can maybe find some guys that are struggling and, and reconnect with them and help. That's them. Ex- so, that's exactly right. And uh, and the guys who are uh, who are struggling, uh, as as I told a few of them, there's there's nobody else and no better uh, group to talk to uh, than the guys that went through it with you. You bet. You bet. All right, let's talk about this month's Gazette. Um, what's in it? We've got about seven minutes, so um, I'll get out of your way. Uh, what's it about? <laughs> so I can, I can name that tune. Uh, yeah, can you name about, it in seven minutes? Yeah, easily, easily. Um, so we, uh, we're, uh, we're wrapping up, and, I, and I'll actually give, give you a twofer, Mac. Whoa. Uh, so we're actually wrapping up June here. Uh, uh, we're still in that month, and the June edition of the Gazette is uh, is all focused uh, primarily on on learning, training, and professional military education, and uh, you've got a a large uh, stable of articles in there um, from all over 
training and education command and from the from the grounds eye view out in the schoolhouses and the operating forces as well. Um, I will highlight uh, really, really two articles uh, that are must reads, uh, I would say, for uh, for anyone looking at uh, uh, how the Marine Corps is is preparing Marines, training, training the uh, uh, the uh, the fighters, the war fighters, the, the men on, and women on the ground to uh, uh, to compete in the future. Uh, and uh, the first uh, first article is uh, actually from uh, uh, officers within uh, within training and education command. And this is a, a, a quick view from 29 Palms of of how. Uh, the service level training programs are retooling and focusing on training those skills uh, for uh, for future competition. The uh, title of the article is Training the Force for Peer Competition. Authors are Major Matt Hawkins and Major Zach Riley. And then I would also highlight an uh, article titled The Four Block Littoral Force by Major General Dale Alford. Uh, someone certainly well known to uh, to all your listeners. Yep. Um, earlier earlier this month, General Alfred took over as the uh, commanding general of Training Command. That is the uh, the headquarters that oversees all of the uh, uh, training programs and MOS producing uh, schools, formal learning centers, not just throughout the Marine Corps, but where we have Marines training and being trained by the other services. So. Navy runs our flight school, the Air Force runs our dog handler school, uh, the Army runs our MP school. So those, all of those training detachments and what are called formal learning centers fall under General Alford now. And uh, he's, he's actually the most senior general officer to be put in charge of that headquarters. And uh, the Commandant is doing that with a, uh, a purpose in mind. And that purpose is to look at how the uh, MOS producing training establishments need to uh, transform in order to meet his uh, his intent uh, in force design 2030. And, and General Alfred is looking really, really closely at how Marine infantry, how the schools of infantry, infantry officer course, and the way we produce our uh, uh, primary ground warfighters can really lead the way in that transformation. So I, I definitely uh, uh, recommend those two uh, those two uh, uh, articles. Um, and I said I was going to give you a twofer. We're, we're about to head into July. The July magazine is is online and hitting people's uh, hitting people's mailboxes uh, as I speak. And uh, I'll just point out that this is uh, somewhat historic uh, because for the first time we have a focus area on Marine Corps recruiting. Uh, and so there are a family of articles from uh, uh throughout Marine Corps Recruiting Command uh, that are are really looking at every aspect of uh, cards on the table. What is the most important Marine Corps mission outside of a combat environment? Um, since the, uh, the end of the draft and the advent of the all-volunteer force, what you really have is an all-volunteer recruited force since the 1970s. And so, uh, you know, to to have a Marine Corps, you must have uh, that uh, that that full court press uh, in recruiting out there finding the most qualified young Americans to uh, uh, to go through entry level training. Well, so, and, and really, when you listen to Dale Al Dale, Dale Alford, and, and I would encourage everybody if you want to know where if I would tell you where to start, read General Alford's article. 
and um, he came on the program uh, here um, a bit ago, and uh, and he talked about it. I would tell you to listen to that as well. And 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 really, one of the things that when you talk to General Alford, he'll tell you is that our recruiting is going to change, and uh, and uh, the Marine Corps, the infantry community is going to be transformed. And so it's going to be very interesting to watch the changes that get gets get that get made. The requirements, you know, for to be an infantryman are going up, right? Which is the bread and butter of the Marine Corps, and that's not a small number of people to recruit, you know, in those GCT categories. So, um, so it's it's going to be very interesting. I mean, a huge, you know, a huge change in the Marine Corps, a huge change. You know, th- without a doubt, and this uh, this. Uh, there are several articles in uh, in July uh, that uh, that talk to that change, and uh, and and I, I really need to recommend one in particular. It's okay. uh, uh, it's uh, by by General uh, or correction Colonel Jeff Morgan, uh, who's the uh, uh, the chief of staff of uh, of Recruiting Command, and uh, it's titled "The All Volunteer Parentheses Recruited Force," and if you want to understand where we've come from and where we're going with regard to Marine Corps recruiting. This is probably the best comprehensive uh, uh, description and explanation of that, that you can, uh, that you can read, uh, you know, in the, in the form of a, of a magazine article. Um, a lot of other information in there about different, different uh, aspects of recruiting to include how we recruit recruiters, how we develop the recruiting workforce. Um, and uh, I, 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 I think this is important for all all Marines, all uh, uh, professionals to read and to and to gain some knowledge of, because like a lot of places and a lot of jobs in the Marine Corps, if you're not assigned to it and doing that work, you really don't know that much about it. Um, so if uh, on the uh, on the enlisted side, if you haven't been a recruiter uh, or been on recruiting duty as an officer, if you haven't served uh, within recruiting command at any of the RSs or districts, you really don't know what it's all about, and this gives you uh, uh, a great education uh, in uh, in that aspect of uh, of what the Marine Corps must do to, to uh, continue to exist. Okay, um, we have to leave it there. Sure. Um, so, General Alford's article is entitled. The title again is "The Four Block Littoral Force." Okay, and then that the article you just mentioned by the Chief of Staff of Marine Corps Recruiting Command it's, is it's called "All Volunteer." Recruited force. The all-volunteer recruited force. All right. All right, Woody, first of all, have a great 4th of July. Uh, congratulations again on, on the awarding the Purple Heart. And thanks for jumping, jumping on. Uh, and, and I'll give you a call here in a couple of weeks, and, and we'll get you back on. and We'll deeper dive into this. But thanks for doing this. Sounds good. You bet, Mac. All right. There you have it, Chris, Chris Woodbridge. More of All Marine Radio coming up next. Yeah, so if you know somebody who's uh, who's in that situation, um, it's not the easiest, you know, thing to do. But you know, you it can be done. It can be done. So um, anyway, there you have it, Chris Woodbridge. That'll do it on a Wednesday. Have a great day. Uh, this program repeats itself momentarily. It'll be up on the internet here in a little bit. So, um, if you're just tuning in, don't touch that dial because it will it will repeat itself here in the next few minutes, as it normally does. 
Uh, tomorrow, the Mensa brothers will join me. We'll talk about Afghanistan, a little bit about China, uh, get their thoughts on uh, get their thoughts on uh, that article. Excuse me, I had to sneeze. And uh, get ready for the 4th of July weekend. So, have a great day. I'm Mike McNamara, the Salt Marine Radio, on the All Warrior Radio Network. If I could help you or one of your friends, don't hesitate. Uh, give me a call. I'd more, I'd be more than happy to. On that note, have a great Wednesday. I'm out. <laughs>